I'm Luke Simmons. And I'm Seth Trout. And we are here to critique the hell out of culture. Well, hey, welcome back to the King and Culture podcast. It is great to have you with us. My name is Luke Simmons, as we just said, here with Seth Trout. And uh, this is a fun podcast, Seth. I'm enjoying that we're doing this together. Me too. It feels like something that when it first started, I think you said, hey, we should start a podcast. And I said, what do you call two guys who love the sound of their own voice? A podcast. (laughs) I think if the shoe fits, you know, but but it seems like this is helping some people. We're getting some good feedback. So thanks for those of you who are listening and rating this and reviewing it. More importantly, sharing it with friends. Um, But the whole heart behind this is really to try to provide more theological rigor and strength and backbone. Uh, for our church community at Redemption Church Gateway um, so that we can think about culture and engage it well. Um, we aren't trying to make everybody grumpy or angry, but we are trying to give people just really good lenses through which to see the culture um, and see the ways that we are, ourselves are actually negatively impacted by the culture so that we can be more shaped by a, a more biblical vision. Yeah, and I think the big idea is a lot of this stuff matters a ton, and it's just, frankly, interesting to me, but it doesn't really belong in the pulpit on a Sunday. Sure. And so what's nice about this is it's a good outlet for uh, meaningful discussion that does affect our worldview and our life, uh, but it's not exactly preaching the text of the Bible, which is the primary goal of sermons on Sunday. Yeah. So, uh, Seth, remind us what we talked about last time, because this is kind of part two of a little bit of a two-part thing that we started last time. So last time we talked about semen, menstruation, and the people of God. Yes. And foreskin. And foreskin. That's right. That was the the most important part. But the whole idea of that was the symbolic priestly washings we see in the Old Testament as foreshadows to the practice of baptism. So it's kind of sacraments part one. If sacrament comes from Latin word sacramentum, which means mystery, it's kind of physical, tangible, five sense experiences that are pictures of conversion or pictures of the results of conversion or of conversion. And so the gospel is a mystery that's manifest in the history of Christ and the, the sacraments are ways that we can participate in it and teach ourselves about it and physically proclaim uh, the spiritual reality. And so looking at those three issues, we looked at Leviticus 15, which talked a lot about regulating ejaculation and menstruation and other parts of the scripture that talk about uh, circumcision. And we're trying to go, okay, if the whole scripture is breathed out by God for correcting and training in righteousness, then what is Leviticus 15? How's that fit into that? And so we talked about that last week. Yeah, so if you want to go back and listen to that, that's a previous episode. Uh, Today, though, we're talking about the other sacrament that we celebrate on a regular basis at our church, which is uh, communion or the Lord's Supper. And we're going to look at some ways that that has been misunderstood and some of the implications of it for our lives and for our uh, following of Jesus. So start off, Seth, what is the Lord's Supper and why do we take it? So Lord's Supper, in different traditions, they call it Eucharist, which comes from the Greek word Eucharisto. Sorry, I have to butcher yeah. that one. Yeah. Uh, which means Thanksgiving. Yep. And so it's the Thanksgiving meal. It's the Thanksgiving supper. You're giving thanks when, when it says when Jesus, on the night he's betrayed, he broke the bread and he gave thanks. You're kind of appealing to this meal that's meant to commemoratively, commemoratively uh, and meaningfully help you give thanks for what Christ has done. And so it's the Passover Seder. Uh, we see this in the Old Testament, that when God is freeing his people from Egypt, he institutes a meal that helps them commemorate their exit of slavery. And Jesus is observing Passover with his 
disciples on the night that he's betrayed, and he reinterprets the Passover meal to be about him, mm. not just about what happened in the book of Exodus. Yeah, so it's this meal that's, uh, it's a, you use the word commemorative, or it commemorates, it, it helps us to remember the Lord and to remember his sacrifice for us. Um, but I actually, you know, over the last year or so, a book that I really loved was a small little book by Tim Chester. I don't know if you've read it, Seth, called Truth You Can Touch. And he just talks about really this reality that baptism and communion are these embodied practices that that add richer meaning. But he talks about the various views of the Lord's Supper throughout history. And I was especially drawn to the historic kind of reformed view that um, there is a, a real spiritual presence of the Lord with you. Not the physical presence like the, uh, Roman Catholics would believe, but not merely just a remembrance, but that Christ is actually with us when we take the Lord's Supper. Yeah, there's a, we call it real spiritual presence. And so the Zwingli's view, which is the Baptist historical view, which is the memorial view, is it's just a function of helping us remember. But the Reformed view is actually saying it's not less than that. It's more. It's actually more than that. Yeah. That there's a promised special presence that God gives us. So we, we could call these means of grace. Mm. Like it's a way that God, so a, a way or a means that God has ordained that we commune with him, that we meet with him. And then he's in our presence in a special promised way when we observe the sacraments. Yeah, one of the things that that has helped me do is as I celebrate the Lord's Supper, I often sort of in my head picture the Lord handing me the bread and handing me the cup. Um, there's a great line from a song where uh, it talks about that, you know, we'll have a party and all the drinks are on Jesus. We'll bring, you know, we'll bring all our history. He'll bring the bread and wine. And I just love that imagery that the Lord's with us, that he's provided this meal, that it reminds us of our relationship with him and it reminds us really of our relationship with each other as well. Yeah, and even when you think about the images themselves of unleavened bread and the fruit of the vine, which you know, growing up in a semi-Jewish household, we would practice these Jewish seders. And we remember, we tell ourselves we're eating this unleavened bread because they had to get out of Israel in a hurry. Mm -hmm. And there's a sense of which, you know, the angel of death came through and now Pharaoh's saying, go for it. Uh, but we got to get out of here. And so we don't have time to let the yeast do its work. We got to bake it as is. And we're, we got to do crackers. We can't do loaves yeah. was the whole idea. And so even like the elements themselves are meant to teach you history. Mm. And when we think about God revealing himself, a lot of times we think about God reveals himself in like doctrine or in words, which is true. But the main way that God reveals himself is in his acts in history. Yeah. And it's his words that are commenting on his acts in history that are adding clarity and definitiveness to his character. But his, his, the act of letting his people go from slavery. So even in the reason we do unleavened bread is mm -hmm. because they were in a hurry to get out of Egypt. Yeah. So it teaches, it reminds God's yeah. with us. When it connects us as the people of God across all time and reminds us that we are part of this larger story. And, um, and obviously Jesus gives it new meaning with his death on the cross. I also, uh, I remember Michael Frost, an Australian uh, preacher one time talking about how just ironic it is that the one who was often accused of being a, a drunk and a glutton, when he gives his disciples a way to remember him, it's through eating and drinking and just the kind of subversive reality of that, that it's a way of Jesus kind of saying like, Hey, I, I really am about relationship. I really am about fellowship with you. I really am about wanting to be connected with you in, in the regular stuff of life. And I think that's one of the beautiful parts of the Lord's Supper. Yeah, so what we see with Jesus is Jesus takes the symbols of how God has worked in history. And so in the mind of the Jews, there'd be kind of two great things that they associate with bread. 
One bread was the Passover Seder that we had to eat this unleavened bread quickly getting out of Egypt. And the second one would be the manna, the bread from heaven, that when they're in the wilderness, when they can't provide for themselves, when they're walking in the Lord's way, and that takes them into the desert, God provides calories they need by miracle. Manna literally in Hebrew means what is it? Like there's like a sense of where did it come from, how to get here, which is really interesting because when you read the gospel of the New Testament, that's basically how people react to Jesus. Hmm. What is it? Where did it come from? Where, who are you? Yep. You know, aren't you from there? No, he's from here. He can't be from there. Right. So like Jesus is manna. People are like, what is this guy? What is it? And so there's bread was strongly associated. You could do a whole book on theology of bread or history of bread. When Jesus saying, I'm the bread of life. Yeah. That's the, so that's the text that I wanted to look at here as kind of shaping our first discussion here about this idea of cannibalism. Yeah. Right. Is, yeah. So, so as we think about communion, we've said, here's what it is. There, there were some misunderstandings though in history tremendous misunderstandings. And, and ways in which especially non-Christians sort of critiqued the church and said, Hey, is this what you're doing? And one of them was cannibalism. Yeah. I mean, and you could see that if you don't read John six in the context of the metaphor of bread that we see throughout the Bible, it'd be easy to think this guy's crazy. So this is John six thirty five. He said to them, I am the bread of life. So Jews who had their minds steeped in scripture should have gone bread, Lord's Supper, or the, not Lord's Supper for them, but Passover Seder and manna, manna in the wilderness. This uh, uh, picture there. Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Uh, yet the Father give me, all that Father give me will come to me. And they grumbled about him saying, and he says, eat my flesh, drink my blood. <laughs> right. And they go, uh, how can this man give us flesh, his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life. And then they go on to say, who can, this is a hard saying, who can sure. do it? Like, so they. Well, in the Jewish mind, you, you didn't even eat the blood of animals. Yes. And you definitely didn't drink the blood or eat the blood of a human. Yeah. Right? Human sacrifice was what the detestable Canaanites did. Yeah. And this sounds, you know, like you said, you, you go, wow, this sounds extreme. Yeah, the god Molech demanded sacrifice of humans. And so there was like, you don't do this. And so Jesus is saying, eat my flesh, drink my blood. And what he's predominantly referring to here is this Passover Seder, this bread of life. And uh, in the wilderness, manna phenomenon. And the Passover Seder, the blood of the lamb was shed so that the angel of death would pass over. So you, the wrath of God is no longer visited, no longer visits your house, no longer visits you. And Jesus is saying, my blood is the blood that saves you from the wrath of God. And my flesh is the thing that you eat when you're panicked and you have to get out of slavery. Yeah. And I'm the one from heaven, the what is it, that provides what you cannot provide for yourself. And so he's saying, eat my flesh, drink my blood. And, but... Even the Jews have this reputation of being serious Bible scholars. So they're not connecting the dots on the metaphor. They're missing out on it. But what ends up happening is, especially in the first century, you have this reputation being spread among the pagans about Christians that these crazy people are cannibals. Yeah, they're the ones that eat, eat some guy's body and blood. Gross. Yeah, which is one of the reasons there's that first wave of persecution from Rome. Hmm. Is that, I mean, if you heard about a cult that was eating people... Well, yeah, I mean, some of the conspiracy theories today uh, surround that. I mean, they relate to this idea that there are these people who are satanic, who are, you know, sacrificing children and eating the hearts of children and doing all this in some sort of satanic ritual. And, and you know, credibility aside, it, to the degree that that would be true, you'd go, that's horrific. Yeah, and 
conspiracy theories aside and, and explicit satanic connections aside, it's just true. <laughs> yeah. People sacrifice their unborn and born children either through murder or absenteeism on the altar of career success, financial independence, uh, personal psychological independence. Yeah. That there's this reality that that is satanic and people do it all the time that, uh, whether that's through overworking or through abortion, there is a sacrifice the child on the altar of success. Sure. That definitely happens, but I don't think that's what we're talking about. No, I'm not talking about that. I'm just, but I'm just, I'm getting it like the idea that people would eat other people. I mean, it, there isn't anywhere in any kind of civilized world where you'd go, Oh, that's fine. No yeah. big deal. That's acceptable. So, so that begins to be a, an accusation against the church that they have to fight. Uh, were there others? Yeah. The whole idea of what the family of God is and the way that it manifests at the table that we come together at the table of the Lord as a family. Hmm. This is where you, I don't know if some, if you're listening and you grew up in like a Baptist circles, everyone's, Hey brother, Hey brother, Hey brother brother, sister, brother, sister, you know, and yep. it's brother Luke, brother Sean, brother Seth, and yep. that kind of deal happens. And that partly the reason they do that is because that's biblical language because we refer to each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. We have the same father and therefore we're family to one another and we share at the same table. The father provides for us this meal. We have this firstborn brother, the one who goes before us, his name is Jesus. Yep. We're all his little brothers and little sisters. He's our big brother who came and got us when we were resistant. And he's made us part of the family by, by his sub- substitute and sacrifice. And so this strong familial language uh, ends up being like, hey, this is my wife, my sister in Christ. Yeah. And, and if you hear that out of context, you're going, these crazy incestuous people. Mm. That they're sleeping with their siblings and there's such a little cult. And so, again, you talk about so a So another cult. misunderstanding. You know, people might hear a husband and wife refer to each other as brother and sister because they are brothers and sisters in Christ and and assume then, oh, man, there's some sort of incestuous thing happening here in this Christianity thing. They eat people and they're... Yeah, this is my sister, incest. my wife. We're going to eat our older brother. <laughs> right. And then sing some songs. Right. And you're going, oh, my gosh, what is wrong with these crazy people? And so some of the you know, the misunderstandings in the first couple of centuries is what leads to the, some of the serious persecutions was, man, these incestuous, cannibalistic, crazy people. And, uh, but it's really, it's the Lord's Supper. It makes us a family and we are participating in Christ's substitute for us and in, in by eating it. And so it's the family dinner, it's the family table. When you think about the way these two sacraments interact, if you have baptism and the Lord's Supper, it's really that baptism, um, ought to happen once it marks entering into the family of God, mm-hmm. whereas communion ought to happen all the time. It marks like the ongoing uh, family meal that the family shares. And so that's why we do baptism regularly, but you get baptized once. Right. We do yeah, communion I, I regularly, always think baptized of, once. And explain it as baptism is like your wedding, and communion is like date night. Yeah. And it's this time when you just you keep reminding yourself of the commitment you made. Mm-hmm. And it's it's again and again saying... I belong at this table, you belong at this table, we belong at this table. Yeah. This table is symbolic of our, our family. And this is why even Jesus eating a meal with his disciples when he institutes the supper, like he could have given us anything. He could have given us a cross necklace. He mm-hmm. could have given us a crystal to rub. He could have given us a bracelet. He could have given us a tattoo. 
but he well, gives us a meal. Well, one of the things that I think is really cool about that, especially since, uh, at least in a tradition like ours, where we celebrate the Lord's Supper every week, I love that it's so multifaceted. I love that it doesn't just mean one thing, but that it really is kind of like this gem that you can hold up and twist and see in all the different light. And it, you know, sometimes you can focus on how it makes us a family, and sometimes you can focus on how it's the presence of the Lord Jesus spiritually with you, and sometimes you can focus on um, how he's brought you out, like he brought the people out under the Passover. And there's just all these different images that uh, you can think about, and it's not just any one thing. That's pretty cool. What's interesting, even like these accusations of incest and cannibalism, is when you consider them from a secular point of view, and by secular I mean a kind of naturalistic, Darwinistic, everything is here is just kind of the unfolding of the evolutionary process, period. Uh, you have to ask, why are those things even bad in the first place? Why are... Why are incest and cannibalism bad in the first place? Like if it's... If all we are is like fizzing brain molecules that happen to have these preferences, mm, then, yeah. then why is that a problem? Okay, so if... Nothing happens when you die. If human life is just somehow more evolved, ape life, if ape life is just somehow more evolved, amoeba life, why are, Why is the resistance to cannibalism and incest? Because if there's no created order, if there's no creator, there's no created order, there's no violation of laws, there's just preferences. Sure. And, and, cons- and, and, and strength. Yeah, preferences and strength. And even even concept of like consent in incest, like why does consent matter? Why does someone's preferences to have something done to them or not done to them matter? You know, we don't ask flowers for consent when we pluck them. You know, because right. if and if we're just kind of part of the same fizzing, spiraling, atomic dust that just but just by luck chance I'm me and not that flower that's fading over there. Yeah. Then why is anything matter? Well, that's an interesting thing just when you think about our culture is that like there are these moral standards and a lot of them whether anyone wants to admit it are kind of borrowed from a Christian tradition and yet they're infused with all these other very godless and you know secular naturalistic ways of thinking it's inconsistent if you think historically so going back to leviticus 18 which it lists all these different types of incest and why they're bad right and in that same list you have uh, a list like it, it leviticus 18 talks about don't have sex with your sister here's why you know because that's your sister so don't do it you know and then later on it says don't lie with a man's with a man it's an abomination women don't lie with women it's an abomination and so this kind of you have like homosexuality incest bestiality on the same list right incest bestiality same-sex sexual behavior, and it's all ruled out as unlawful sexual relations. The question is why? And what benefit does this give to society? What benefit does this give to God's creation? What's the structure of that? And what's interesting is even later on, as you have uh, this one man and one woman, which we have in creation, Genesis 1, it is one man and one woman, that the creational norm is single uh, wife, Throughout some of the Old Testament, you have... Rather than polygamy. Rather than polygamy or, or polyamory or whatever it is. Throughout a lot of the Old Testament, you have God interacting with and using uh, men who have multiple wives, never blessing it. And if anything, all these multiple wives only add chaos and pain to their lives. Yeah, there's no good story in the Old Testament of like, oh man, this really worked out well. Yeah, if anything, like the the only good part of it is these wise people can say, 
I thought that this kind of unbuckled sexual adventure was going to scratch the itch, and it didn't. Right. It was all an empty promise, an empty lie. And there's constantly this kind of going back to genesis of this one man, one woman thing. We have that instituted again or, or reupheld. The creational norm is reupheld again in the New Testament. And this idea of the ideal is that there'd be husbands, uh, men or husbands of one wife. And that kind of whole thing plays out. But it's interesting if you look at societally, what would happen is the most powerful and the most rich men would be the ones who owned property and had lots of wives. And so basically you, if you were on the upper, upper 1% of the world, you had um, lots of wives, women, property, whatever it is. Okay. What that meant was that the majority of men in the world were unwed. Yeah. Right. And so there's a term floating around on the internet now called incel. Okay. The involuntary celibates. Right. And how these are basically... Uh, you know, I just saw a statistic the other day that from since 2008 to 2018, uh, the amount of men who were virgins ages 18 to 30 has gone from about 8% to about 28%. Wow. Which feels significant. Yeah. And you can attribute that to pornography, whatever it is. You can attribute that to uh, like needing certain financial standards and people kind of treating marriage as like the, the, uh, the crown of your accomplishments rather than like a, a baseline to set it in. So yeah, but it's probably not coming out of a bunch of young secular men deciding that celibacy is a better way of life. It's certainly not coming out. It's so, involuntary. So I would attribute it to like for the last couple hundred years, you'd get married and then build a life. Right. Yeah. It, it, I heard a conversation about this the other day where they were kind of saying, is marriage a cornerstone or a capstone? Yes. Is it the thing that you kind of build your life out of or after you've built your life do you then you know cap it off with okay now I'm ready to get married yeah and so it this idea of once I'm successful and financially independent and I'm you know 34 my 401k is rolling pretty good then I'll get married and that's the increasing norm and uh, but the incel community which it is a community uh, would say the reason that we're all don't aren't able to sleep with women is because of feminism. Okay. Right. Cause these feminists, you know, have raised the standards and we can't meet them and they probably have a more nuanced way of putting it than that, but probably not much more nuanced, but that's basically because of feminism. Now we're these involuntary celibates. We would like to probably with a kind of victim status, hopefully absolutely for theirs. I mean, they would want that. Yeah. They'd want a victim status. They, they super bitter, angry. A lot of like the mass murders we've seen would, you, you kind of can, I don't know what qualifies as a lot, but more than a couple were members of these incel online chat rooms, yeah. you know, mad at women and, and so, so, but anyway, going back most of world history, when you had these, you know, powerful emperor type people with hundreds of wives, what that creates was, you know, cause about 50, 50 birth rate, men, women, sure. is you had tons of men who were incels. Hmm. They were in the military. They had punch of a bunch of sexually pent up frustration that they exercised through a lot of times sleeping with young boys or with animals. And so God's regulating that. Mm. And he's still upholding like, Hey, even though you're in cell or whatever, you still can't just scratch your itch wherever you want to. There's a way that it's meant to be done. But these men would, you know, start wars and fight in wars and loot and plunder. And it was yeah. basically bad for society. But what ends up happening is, is through the upholding of the one man, one woman, anti polyamory, anti polygamy, 
teaching in Christianity is it actually kind of levels the playing field because mm. now the rich and powerful men, instead of having 1,200 wives, have one. So that means 1,199 men who w- wouldn't have had a shot to get married now have a shot to get married. And what happens, you actually see this, is that after men get married, their testosterone drops, their tendency to violence drops. This is why you get married and your car insurance payment goes down <laughs> because there's literally a change in your physiology. You become huh. more docile, and I mean that positively, or docile is probably lame word. You become more gentle in the Christ-like way, and and there's a, a tempering to your unruly maleness. Yeah. Generally happens. speaking. Generally speaking. Not in every instance. Yeah, a lot of bad guys still married, but they probably would have been worse if they weren't married. And and so this kind of idea of like when you get married, your testosterone drops, you become more invested in long-term process than in short-term thinking. You become farsighted, no longer nearsighted, or less nearsighted and more farsighted or short-sighted. And it actually benefits society as a whole that the violent, unruly men tend to be domesticated by marriage. And so that's not oppression, that's actually liberation, because you are now able to build and subdue and have dominion, be fruitful, multiply. You're actually living into your creative design. Whereas when you're kind of not bound to an institution, you just kind of run unruly left and right. It's kind of like I've heard the phrase before that men are like uh, pickup trucks. They drive straighter with a heavier load. <laughs> or men are like 18-wheelers. You know, they they don't turn as fast when there's a lot in the back. You know, and, yeah. and just the idea of like the more responsibility that men have to create households uh, it actually is good for society good for them it affects their even just their psychosomatic emotional makeup and it's generally good and so this this whole idea of like the church's sexual ethic being oppressive it's actually just not because mm-hmm. we meet at the family table we are brothers and sisters with one another and all yes, of a sudden so, so this is what i was kind of wondering as we're talking because i feel like we had this whole conversation about communion and now we've had this whole conversation that feels like it's about sexual ethics and I, I know I just interrupted where you were going, but I'm going like, how? what do these have to do with each other? Um, I can imagine someone listening going like, both of these things are very interesting. I don't see the connection. Well, all of a sudden, my wife is my sister. Hmm. She's not a ball and chain. Hmm. She's not one of 12,000. She's not one of 1,200. She's not one of 12. She's not one of three. She's one of one. Hmm. And she's made in the image of God. And we are before the Lord brother and sister in Christ before we're even husband and wife. Hmm. And so our connection at the table of the Lord coming as beggars to the Lord's table, needing bread, needing wine, needing forgiveness, needing a substitute, that that is actually prior to and deeper than and more eternal than our marriage even. Hmm. And so my ability and my, the obvious capacity that I now have Contrast to the Darwin view where the strong survive, you know, social Darwinism, you know, the, and even contrast to the, uh, like the historical society view where it's just the powerful rich and they impose their will and there's no dignity, there's no consent, there's just power and it's exercise. All of a sudden now, I have an equal, hmm. a co-heir, a sibling of Christ who's shared the same father and she's my wife. Hmm. And it's not incestuous. It's a spiritual reality that actually shapes and informs our marriage. Hmm. That my wife is my sister in Christ in a deeper, more true way than she's even my wife. Yeah. Well, and so the Lord's table special. does that. Yeah. yeah. Communion does that. 
and all of a sudden there's this this mutuality that's possible there's this reversal of the power dynamic that's possible mm. there's this laying your life down that's possible and what ends up happening is so there's there's this uh in Eugene Peterson's book Practice Resurrection he talks about the three languages of the church and he talks about how there's three contexts for these languages so the first language he talks about is kerygma which is preaching it's kerygma is language that is intense it demands response, uh, but it's it's a uh, hostile in that you know it's like walking in a movie theater yelling fire. Right. You either you can't just neutrally respond to that. You have and so this is preaching. Repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. You have right. to decide true false. Yep. And you respond. And so preaching is most basically what happens on Sundays. It and and it works on the will. It's trying to change our affections. Hmm. You fear this more than you fear God. Let me help you fear God. Yeah. You love this more than you love God. Let me help you love God. You know, it's, it's, it's will-centered, it's affection-centered, and it's primarily done in the context which we break bread together, the Lord's Supper. Uh, so that's kerygma. And what ends up happening is, so I'll talk about, I'm going to have myself. The second language is didache, or teaching. This is the explaining, the applying of doctrine. Uh, it's a lot of what happens in our midweek classes. It is the uh, working through the the details, the articles of faith. Yep. You could even call this podcast a form of didache, mm-hmm. right? Uh, but it's, you know, teaching the deposit. We're, we're given this deposit of faith and making sure we pass on the next generation. Sure. Uh, it's less will affection centered and it's more kind of, I want to shape my worldview mm-hmm. in a meaningful, adequate way. But the, the third language, and I'm thinking about these as like concentric circles, okay. right? So the biggest, most outside one is kerygma. Mm-hmm. Then inside we have didache. But the center at the heart of it is what Eugene Peterson calls paracletic or the table. And so if you think about the, the broadest one is kerygma, it has to do with pulpits. The second one coming in is lecterns, it has to do with didache, like professors teaching. Mm-hmm. And the center one is what he calls paracletic or tables. Paracletic comes from um, in the book of John when he says, I'm leaving, but I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit, the helper or yeah. the comforter. The Greek word there is paraclete. It's the one who comes alongside that Eve was meant to come alongside and the Holy Spirit comes alongside. And this paraclete language is meant to be this, uh, this encourager, this sure. comforter, yep. this helper. Yeah, I remember um, the church that Molly grew up in, there was a guy at the church that had a ministry called paraclete. It was kind of a counseling ministry. He would come alongside people. He would help them think through things. He would uh, walk with them through situations. Paraclete. Yeah, and so this is the idea of the table. That when you believe in the Lord's table, that we all come hungry and he provides, we're alongside one another as needy people. And so what Eugene Peterson argues and what I think is true is that actually the paraclitic language is the dominant heart language of the church. That if uh, And what ends up happening is a lot of times we think that maturity is using a lot of charismatic language and that good pastoring, good shepherding, good being a good small group leader, being a helpful husband is preaching at people. Okay. And it's just not true that the, mm. that the most important language we have is this helper, comforter, encourager, alongsider language. And that when I, so one of the things you end up seeing in like marital problems is husbands who use charismatic or didactic language more than paraclitic language because mm. they think I'm the leader of this household and then sure. they're preaching and teaching yep. as opposed to this drawing out this gentleness, this, uh, paraclitic language that's imaging the spirit and the way the spirit, but even Jesus, 
when he came, he incarnated for 30 years and then he started preaching. So there's almost like this 90% being with 10% teaching that Jesus himself does in his earthly ministry. 30 years being here, maybe three years teaching and, yeah. and preaching. Yeah, and so, what I like about that is it's not saying, I mean, especially as a preacher, I like that it's not saying, hey, there's no place for preaching or there's no place for teaching, but it's to say that, you know, the thing that, that everybody in the body of Christ is to be part of is that coming alongside each other ministry. Yeah, and it's key for us as preachers that if we spend more time using charismatic language than we do using paracletic language, we're probably not being good shepherds, even if we may be going, being good preachers. Sure. Because I think that in our homes, in our tables, everywhere we go, this is the mutual language that we all have in common. And so just like my wife is my sister in Christ more than she is my wife, so also I'm your brother in Christ more than I am your employee direct report. Mm-hmm. And you are my brother in Christ more than you are my boss. And and we are brothers in Christ to our congregations more than we are their pastors. Yeah, there's a pastor I've been kind of listening to lately, and he talks about that what we need as pastors and what the people in our church need from us as pastors is for us to be merely human sized leaders. Yeah, absolutely. That when we start to think we're more than human sized and when others start to think we're more than human sized, we're all putting ourselves in a position to not only be disappointed, but to be unhealthy. Yeah. And so this, this paracletic language, the helper, comforter, encourager, alongsider, sharing at tables, like we have to see that as the first language that if we're people who are being, that if the spirit is what marks us as the people of God preeminently, the spirit of God, then that's going to create this paracletic way of speaking and being. And it's the hallway conversations. It's the meals shared. It's the coffee shared. It's the uh, connecting in that organic way that is actually the backbone of culture making that is the church. And so this is something that all Christians everywhere participate in. Probably the majority of Christians won't do a lot of preaching in their lifetime. Sure. And maybe some will do some teaching, but 100% do this um, table ministry, paracletic ministry, drawing people out, practicing vulnerability, coming alongside what's happening, what's encouraging, how can I help you? Sure. And this, to many, will look from the outside in incestuous. Mm. <laughs> like, man, why are you doing Like, your sister? Are you crazy? But just really choosing to believe that we are family, God's family, and even though that sounds weird, it sounded weird 2,000 years ago. Yeah. Like calling Molly Simmons my sister in Christ. Mm-hmm. It feels clunky because it's so countercultural. Yeah. Because it's like, uh, that feels like a little intimate for, yeah. you know, and it, but it is. Sure. And that's the, this is the paracletic nature of our relationships. And I think that's key for us to see brothers and sisters, brothers and brothers, sisters and sisters, brothers and sisters under this, we meet at the table. It's actually in the communion moment that we're learning the most about who we are as people, as men, as women, under the Father and in the family. Yeah. Well, and it is interesting. I feel like if we could be healthier around th- some of those dynamics as people, uh, some of the tensions between men and women, some of the awkwardness between men and women in the church um, would would be a lot less. you know. And, and unfortunately, a lot of us have been hurt, and a lot of people have seen that abused and mishandled. And but, along those lines, one of the things that I see is like, I know a ton of really solid single women mm-hmm. who like inhabit their identity as paracletes. Well, and a lot of the, 
not, a, I'm not going to say a lot, a good chunk of the frustrated incel type men that I see are locked into this charismatic didactic language hmm. and it drives people away from them. Huh. And it actually creates a social awkwardness and it creates a bitterness and resentment and a take yourself seriously thing that a lot, like when I talk with folks who I don't talk around, people don't tend to walk up you and say, Hey, I'm, I'm an, I'm an incel. Sure. Is it, and, you know, maybe on message boards it happens, but <laughs> but not here, not the church. But a lot of what I try to coach guys on is you need to develop your paraclytic muscles mm. because you're going on dates and asking them about what your take on the Calvinism is, and it's you end up doing lectures. And yeah. turns out, people, which includes women, are not into being lectured over dinner. <laughs> sure, right. So that's one of the things, one of the burdens I feel is is uh, this this kind of a, a masculinity that is paraclitically shaped and less so charismatic didactic shaped that is uh, more, more interested in like the helper gentle language and mm-hmm. identifying with the spirit than it is with uh, kind of the power language that can sometimes come across in charismatic and didactic environments because that's the language of relationships. Yeah. Any relationship is built on uh, paracletic thought and process. Well, man, that gives us a lot to think about. So I appreciate that. I, I want to close with this question, though. Uh, put you on the spot here a little bit. I don't know the next time on the, a podcast that we'll talk about communion, uh, but the Lord's Supper is something we celebrate at Redemption Gateway every week. Uh, at times, I've actually had people say, man, is not going to get old to do it every week? And a lot of church traditions, people don't do it every week. I knew the um, first time I ever went to a church that did it, that did communion every week was at Redemption Gilbert years and years ago. And it struck me. Um, so given the fact that we do it every week, Seth, I'm curious, like, how do you keep it fresh and how do you, what are the, like, what are the practical kinds of things you think about when you're not just leading us to take communion, but when you're actually taking the Lord's Supper and participating in that yourself, what are some of the different like things that you'd go, Hey, and this doesn't have to be prescriptive, right? This isn't saying everyone has to do it like this, but to kind of having done so much theological reflection on the Lord's supper, it might be refreshing to some people to hear like, Oh, here's some ways you could think about it. Here's some things you could focus on. Here's some things you could do as we eat and drink together. It'd probably be easier for me to say, what do I notice when it doesn't feel fresh? It's Mm. like when it doesn't feel fresh, here's some of the things going in my heart. One is I've lost touch with the fact that I'm sinning freshly all the time. Hmm. Like I feel like when I kind of go through a season of feeling smug or self-righteous or holier than or somehow patronizingly over and above other people, I come to Lord's Supper moment and I think, I'm glad that those people get to take communion today. Oh, and me too. <laughs> you know, and so whereas when so I... So fresh, a fresh reminder of your sin... Yeah. helps you when I'm when I'm in tune fresh. with my sin and I'm close to it and it's on my mind and I see it as much as I can through God's eyes mm. communion really tends to be fresh because I'm going man I deserved what Christ got and I'm not getting that instead I get a meal with a, yeah. my family in yeah. Christ and so I'd say like I I Makes have sense when I'm, when my fresh, my sins freshly upon my mind, that matters. The second thing is when I really believe that I'm forgetful and that God is being gracious to me and reminding me 
every week of this is what it took, this is what it takes. Uh, and that he's with me in that moment saying, I know that you believe, let me help your unbelief. And I'm praying that prayer of Thomas, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And there's this capacity to forget. There's that. And also just this capacity to believe that I'm living in a different story than what the Bible tells. Mm-hmm. And you kind of forget that I'm in the book of Acts, ends on chapter 28, and I'm somewhere around Acts 29 to 2900 or something like that. Mm-hmm. And book of Revelation hasn't happened yet. Sure. Uh, you know, and, and so it's reminding me that the true narrative world history is God and this is the this is the climax of world history, hmm. uh, you know. Not the year seventy when the temple was destroyed, not the fifteen hundred when the Enlightenment happened, not seventeen seventy six, not two thousand twenty, mm-hmm. but year about thirty three, the climax of world history, and I get to remember yeah. that. You know, it's kind of like you know, nine eleven. You wake up and you don't forget because sure. nine eleven. Right. This changed society. Right, but way more than never forget nine eleven. Every Sunday is never forget thirty three, mm-hmm. eighty thirty three, and so that that kind of seeing myself in the Lord's story matters a ton. The other thing too, when when communion feels really fresh, is when I'm spending time with non Christians who don't buy it, mm. and like I I feel this weightiness of God has provided, and there's hardness or resistance or disinterest, mm. and I find myself recognizing the gift of faith and not taking it for granted and feeling broken and heavy for those who have, who are still deciding to handle their sin problem on their own and what that means for them. And so that, that helps me keep it fresh. Mm. What about you? Uh, yeah, there's a few things. Um, one is, and I realize that, uh, this is because we do grape juice rather than wine, but sometimes I just, um, try to literally remember the sweetness of Jesus while I taste the sweetness of the juice. And, um, it's very, I mean, the grape juice is good. It's, it tastes good. And it's like, oh yeah, this is a good reminder that Jesus tastes good. Um, it's interesting. We we do at Redemption Gateway, you know, we don't use wine, which is a historic thing, but we do use unleavened bread. Mm -hmm. And, um, we actually have a whole group of volunteers that come in every Saturday and they break a bunch of matzo loaves of unleavened bread Right. There's lots of church supply websites where you can buy this, you know, kind of pre-made communion wafer thingies. And not only are they not very good, but they're not, you know, they're not actual like Passover bread. And um, a lot of people put a lot of work in, you know, to some degree, because I've kind of insisted (laughs) that we do that. It's funny. I don't insist that about the wine. So there's my inconsistency, but, um, but yeah, so I think the, the reminder of the Passover, that is something I think about. And then the other thing I think a lot about, and I remember Jeff Vanderstelt helping me think this through is, um, uh, oftentimes when I take communion, I'll try to focus in on one particular area where Jesus has succeeded, where I've failed and I will uh, take the bread and try to remind myself of some way that Jesus has been victorious and obedient in an area where I haven't been. And then I'll take the cup and remember that my sin's forgiven. And that has been a good way to um, not just sort of thank the Lord, generally speaking, for my sin, but specifically for how Jesus is the um, full uh, substitute for everything I need. And then I mentioned earlier, just that kind of mental picture of the Lord handing this to me with a big grin on his face and saying, you know, I'm glad, I'm, I'm glad you're here. Eat up, you know. Yeah, that's a rich picture. It's a rich picture. My son just started eating 
uh, Lucky Charms. Oh, man. And he's pretty good at saying more and doing the sign who for more. Who gave him Lucky Charms? Some amazing parents who love him a lot. So. Really? I figured that sounds like a grandparent move. No, no, it was a Costco. Wow. Costco had him on sale. And that's Holy basically all. Holy smokes. It, Is that like a guilty pleasure for the for if you Seth want, and Taylor Trout? If you want me to buy something. Breaking news here, ladies and gentlemen. If you want me to buy something, tell me it's on sale at Costco. And it's basically <laughs> in my cart. No questions asked. You know, Nutella is on sale at Costco. Yeah, it's kind of gross, though. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I don't know if it is. If, oh. it, if it was, though, I'd like to. I'd believe that. But I, I just trust them as curators of fine things. You know, <laughs> Costco. Lucky Charms. Anyway, so Jay got Lucky Charms for the first time. And it's like, you know, the first time you hand it to him, he's like skeptical. <laughs> and he puts it in his mouth and his like eyes roll back. Like you just <laughs> shot him full of heroin for the first time. And he goes, more, you more, did. more, more. I know there's more? some anti-sugar people listening and going, you did shoot him with it. Heroin. Yeah. Well, <laughs> the shoe fits, you know, that's fine. So, but he goes, more, more, yeah. more. And he looks at you like, uh, give me more. Yeah. And I think that when we really understand grace, that's our reaction mm. is there's like this, man, I need, and that, that even there's like a, a euphoria. That's, I think in Psalm 51, David writes, restore to me the joy mm. of first salvation or the joy of salvation. Yeah. That like, that just like the first time a child tastes lucky charms, there's like a, when you really feel the weight of your sin and you really understand like the sheer, pure, free grace that God dispenses. Yeah. There's like a, give me more. And mm. so that prayer restored me the joy of my salvation Yeah, is one that drives me in that moment because I do remember what it first felt like to when I felt the weight of my sin and I felt Christ in my place mm -hmm. saying, I will pay what you can't. Yeah. And it, and it was personally applied by the spirit to me. Mm -hmm. that there was like a, mm. how will I ever get sick of thinking about communion? Yeah, sure. And so that's part of the prayers too. Yeah. And I think as we've, you know, in the last few years for me, especially kind of thought more about the family language and how that relates to communion, that we are one part of one body, one loaf. There are times too where I'll take communion and I'll look around while I'm doing it rather than kind of eyes shut it's sort of eyes open and looking around and even just being reminded like every single person eating this meal is coming on equal footing. Yes. You know, the people that are brand new Christians, the people that are longtime Christians, the people that are leaders, the people that are strugglers uh, and everywhere, everyone is coming only and uh, fully because of Christ. We're all incestuous cannibals at the table of the Lord. <laughs> yeah. Well, not really. But. <laughs> well, Seth, this has been good. This has been interesting. And I think that kind of wraps up our little uh, two-part thing here on the sacraments. So thanks for helping us think deeply about it. And as you're listening, if you find that this would be helpful for somebody or thought-provoking, uh, send it on to them. If you have other ideas or other questions that uh, you'd like us to talk about uh, at some point, let us know. I know an upcoming episode we're going to be talking about deconstruction. That's something we've been getting a lot of questions about. And so we're going to maybe deconstruct deconstruction a little bit. So we'll see how that goes. But send us other ideas if you have them. And uh, until next time, we'll see you later. Mm -hmm.